Greetings from um, where we go to church, Trinity Bible Church on the north side of town and from Phoenix Seminary. It's a privilege to be gathered with you all this morning and to have the opportunity to preach. I know that I'm not the only uh, faculty member from Phoenix Seminary to be here. Uh, it's, it's great to be able to have this connection. And when my family and I drive southwest in the valley, it feels like we're going perhaps to San Diego. But then we stop, and while there is no ocean, there is less driving in order to get here. So that feels refreshing this morning. And I'm typically teaching the Bible in a classroom setting, and uh, students have the nerve to jump in and ask difficult questions and so forth. And I, I just feel blessed this morning to be able to say things for a while, pretend that everything makes sense, and then just keep going and going for a little while. Uh, as uh, Pastor John and others have pointed out, uh, the, the passage for this morning is Romans 11, or just the very end of Romans 11, verses 33 to 36. And I feel a little bit guilty with the passage this morning. I say that because there's so much work to do going all the way through the book of Romans, including Romans 9 to 11. Our pastor at uh, Trinity recently mentioned he heard about one pastor who finished Romans 8, went on a trip came back and took up Romans 12, hoping that no one would notice that anything happened. Jody and I went to a church back in Michigan where the, the whole ser sermon series on Romans was just shut off after chapter 8. This is it's done. We're moving right along. Never mind that there's 50% more of the book to work through. Obviously, Romans 9 through 11, is a, it's a hard three chapters. And I, I feel guilty because I'm just coming in late here. We're coming in late here. And coming in where the celebration begins, Paul breaks out into praise of God at the end of chapter 11. But it's a good thing to break out into the praise of God. So let's not feel too guilty this morning. The earlier parts of Romans 9 to 11 do build naturally toward our passage. Paul's talked about God taking the initiative to save sinners, to become his children in Christ. And Paul's highlighted the extraordinary grace and justice and authority of God all have sinned. No one deserves anything from God, but God has freely chosen people and drawn them to himself, even as he's allowed some to persist in their sin. And moreover, in God's wise and gracious and just plan, he has drawn uh, some from the Jewish nation, not everyone, Paul says, but some, those who will place their faith in Christ, and God brings in people from the non-Jewish or Gentile families of the world as well. And Paul says that God grafts the Gentiles onto the tree like branches. Remarkably, then, God fulfills his promises to Israel in the Old Testament and extends his grace to all the families of the earth. And it's in discussing those lofty thoughts that Paul breaks out into the praise of God at the end of Romans 11. Let me read this passage, and then we'll continue on with the rest of the sermon, and I'll try to point out some of the key things here that are Lofty thoughts about God and also edifying to us in our spiritual life. Romans 11, beginning in verse 33. Paul writes, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. We were privileged to sing some of those words earlier on in the service. You'll notice that our passage this morning, it does focus directly on God. 
which means that our sermon needs to focus directly or especially on God. So it won't be a sermon that goes directly for something like surface-level needs or, or wants, important as those things are in their proper place. This is a text about God. And then from there, we'll connect the text to our spiritual life. Sound all right? All right. The importance of not just doing things in our spiritual life, but of actually knowing God, knowing God himself is something that I'll often try to illustrate by referring to the work of a surgeon. Where, I, where we go to church, there are actually two surgeons in the congregation. I don't know if there are surgeons present today. If there are, you can correct me should I say anything that is incorrect. But my sense is this. It's crucial for someone who is, say, a surgeon, not only to know the movements that you make with the surgical instruments, but also to know what the parts of the human body actually are and what they do. In other words, pro tip, it would be bad if something needed to be modified or reworked in the midst of a surgery, but the surgeon said, actually, I've only memorized the usual hand motions that one makes with the instruments. I don't know what any of this stuff is or how it actually works. Likewise, in the Christian life, it would be a mistake to think only about trying to do stuff, trying to do certain things, without actually grounding all of that in a strong knowledge of who God is and what God is like. Because even though a theoretical understanding of things sometimes gets a bad reputation in our culture as if it were a waste of time, it turns out that good practice actually requires good theory. And furthermore, the knowledge of God that we're after in today's sermon is in fact connected to the love of God and worship of God and ultimately representing God in all that we do. So my recommendation to you this morning is this, take your eyes away from yourself, from your own sins and your own problems, from the sins and problems of others, and come and think about the good and gracious and holy and sovereign God who just is who he is. I know that I've often come to church with my problems weighing on my mind, only to have to look outward to God, outward to Christ, and then have my perspective enlarged and have new strength for dealing with the realities of life. And I think this passage has something important for you, whether you're a seasoned Christian or whether you are someone who's just looking into the Christian faith and trying to figure things out. That is my encouragement to you. Trust that there's something there in this passage. As we look at the passage, I'm hoping to highlight four things. So if you are a note-taker, and I have no idea of the culture of Redeeming Grace Church, if note-taking is encouraged or discouraged, and I don't have a strong position on that, but in the event that you do write things down in the midst of a sermon, I'll try to, try to highlight four things here. Four things about God that then uh, trickle down to apply to our lives. And those four things are the wisdom of God, the self-sufficiency of God, the grace of God, and the glory of God. So wisdom, self-sufficiency, grace, and glory. For the first one, wisdom, let's look again at verses 33 and 34. Paul says, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his ways and how inscrutable, or sorry, inscru how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? In verse 33, Paul talks about God's wisdom, knowledge, and judgments. And just briefly, when he says judgments, that word sometimes refers to a legal verdict. For example, God does warn about condemnation for those who reject his son, and he promises justification or forgiveness of sins for those who trust in his son. 
But judgments has a broader meaning here, referring to all of God's decisions about what will take place in history. Also, just briefly, in verse 34, Paul echoes the book of Isaiah, Isaiah 40, verse 13 in particular, where Isaiah asks, who has ever provided counsel to God? That's what Paul's talking about here. A counselor, who's been a counselor in the sense of someone who provides guidance or input for strategizing and making decisions? God has never needed one. Now, let's think about God's wisdom here. What is wisdom? Wisdom is a knowledge of deeper or underlying things that enables someone to make good judgment calls. The wise person doesn't just have a superficial look at things. The wise person knows the underlying factors or the higher realities in play and can make the ideal decision about something. We've all recognized wisdom in different situations in our life. You've been sitting around with a group of people trying to fix a problem, trying to trying to make a decision, and one person suggests something that makes you think, that's a terrible plan. I hope that's not the conclusion that we draw. Another person says something that's maybe a little bit more helpful, and then finally someone speaks up, and you start to think, oh, that guy, he's got experience. He knows what he's talking about. That is exactly the right thing to do here. That's what wisdom looks like. So when we talk about God's wisdom, we're talking about God's knowledge of the deep things, the higher things, his knowledge of how things should work, so that he is fit to make the perfect decision about everything. What do we learn about God's wisdom here in verses 33 and 34 in particular? Well, we learn that it is deep. We learn that it is unsearchable, unfathomable. You could never get to the bottom of it. And we learn that it doesn't come from someone else. By virtue of just being who he is, God is full of perfect wisdom and doesn't have to acquire wisdom from elsewhere. This is a fascinating description of God's wisdom. On on the one hand, we do know something about God's wisdom. Paul's just walked through God's plan for salvation for Jewish and Gentile believers. Paul's amazed by the wisdom of God's plan that he just wrote about. And that's why he breaks out into praise. But then even in the midst of knowing something about God's wisdom, Paul contemplates the fact that God's wisdom is still infinite. So it's not as if we could fully comprehend it. It's a matter of encountering God's wisdom. And so knowing something true about God, but then also standing back and saying, but wait a minute, one of the things that I do know is that I know so little and that I do not know all of it. I'm still finite. God is infinite. So as Christian believers, we do know God, but one of the things that we, don't, that we know is that we do not comprehend God fully, which as an aside, that will be at the, the heart of our eternal joy in God's presence. Having a face-to-face vision of God, but never being able to exhaust the infinite wisdom and goodness of God throughout all of eternity. I'm reminded of something Job says in Job 26, 14. There he's talking about the wisdom and power that God shows by doing stunning things in creation. He governs the clouds and the seas and so forth. And then Job says, these are but the outskirts of God's ways. Now, as believers living after the first coming of Christ, we know much more, but the basic point still holds up. Imagine you've got friends who let you know they're in town visiting the valley And they say, yeah, we're we're right in the heart of Phoenix right now, right in the thick of things having dinner. And you think, well, maybe they're on Central Ave and Camelback or they're 
maybe downtown or something like that. And then they share their location with you and you say, Queen Creek? I wasn't a geography major, but it seems like that's not the center of Phoenix. There's nothing wrong with Queen Creek, but relative to the Phoenix area, that's the outskirts at best. Likewise, even in the things we understand, we understand of God's wisdom, even in our grandest thoughts about him, we thought maybe we were getting to the bottom of God, but we weren't even in Queen Creek. As Paul indicates, the right response to such a God is to honor him and to love him and to praise him. But let's also think about some ways that this teaching about God should bring comfort to our life. Two things here. First, there are a lot of evil and broken things in the world that are yet to be resolved. Some of those are broader things, like things affecting whole countries and states and so on. And some of those are more individual things, persistent things in your life that you would change if you could, but they're just there. Health problems, loss, difficulty with people closest to you, job situation, financial situation, school situation, etc. Well, God is never the author of evil. He is never malicious, but he is the one overseeing all of your life, all of my life, including that one thing that the book of Ecclesiastes calls a crooked thing that just won't fit right or get straightened out, like a log on a pile of wood that is shaped in a weird way and just won't stack neatly. All of us have something or some things in our lives like that. We have questions about it. We want to ask, why is God doing things this way? Or why is God permitting this to be this way? Well, bearing in mind that God is never the author of evil, and bearing in mind that there are some harmful situations that we just can and should flee from, bearing all of that in mind, the question that the Christian believer has to ask about the ordinary, the persistent frustrating things, is do I believe that these things have come into my life in accordance with the infinite wisdom of God? Do I believe that what God does in my life is exactly calibrated to mature me, to make me more like Christ, and to bring me everlasting joy? Fully trusting that is not something that comes all at once. It comes over time, living with God in the situations of life, and gaining wisdom and encouragement from brothers and sisters in Christ. And maybe one point of encouragement is this. God does things in strange ways. And we've seen that before. In order to bring his Messiah and his kingdom into the world, he cast his people out of the promised land and let the temple get destroyed. In order to, to deliver us from our sin and death, God the Son, Jesus, subjected himself to crucifixion at the hands of sinners. And in order to fulfill his promises to Israel, God overturned their view of what the Messiah was supposed to be like, cut some of them off the tree, brought some in, added new branches on the tree that hadn't even physically descended from Abraham. God does things in strange ways sometimes at the macro level, and he'll do that. He does that in our individual lives as well for our own spiritual comfort. And when we've seen him face to face, and see his decisions for what they truly were, we will, without any hesitation, say that was exactly the right thing for him to do. And I hope that you and I can lay our heads down on the pillow with that in mind. 
A second, uh, briefer implication, when we pray, we're not God's counselors. God has said right here in Romans eleven thirty four that no one is God's counselor. And at first you might think, well, maybe I wish God would take my input and do exactly what I say. And then you think, well, I'm basically an idiot in a lot of ways. And it's good that God isn't doing whatever I suggest all the time. Our prayers are simply means by which God brings us in to participate in his plan, means by which God conforms our will to his. And yes, sometimes means by which God does give us the very thing that we asked for. Let's now think about God's self-sufficiency as well. After wisdom, self-sufficiency. We already started to think about God's self-sufficiency in verse 34, where we saw no one has to inform God of anything. Then we read in verse 35, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? Here Paul echoes something from Job 41.11, who has first given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. No one can give something to God so as to put God in their debt. As God indicates in Job 41, everything that exists belonged to God, and everything that is good and valuable came from him to begin with. Everything that's good is simply a little reflection of God's own infinite goodness and perfection. And if no one can put God in their debt, then God doesn't gain anything from anyone else. And if God doesn't gain or need anything from anyone else, then just by being himself, God is always all set. That is what self-sufficiency means. God is entirely enough for himself, entirely satisfied in himself. And by implication, he's entirely enough for us as well. This shows up in different places in Scripture where God's people, for example, start to think that God needs their worship and their sacrifices. Let me turn to Psalm 50 and read God's correction for them. Psalm 50, beginning in verse 12, God says, If I were hungry, I would not tell you. For the world and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High and call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. Effectively, God tells them that he wouldn't have to ask for anything from them. P.S. He doesn't need anything anyway. The point of their worship is not to give something to God, something that God needed in order to be fulfilled. The point of their worship is to draw near to God, to give thanks to God, and to receive God's good gifts. Let me quote something from Jerome, one of the great biblical scholars in the church's history. In one of his comments on the Psalms, he says, Other lords, although they may be powerful, Nevertheless, cannot say to their servants, we do not need your works, since they actually need and even abuse their service. God alone is truly Lord, who would require the duty of his servants only for this, that he would have an occasion of giving more. One other place in Scripture that can be mentioned is Acts 17, verses 24 to 25. There Paul is preaching to the philosopher types in Athens. And he says that God, the one who made the world and everything in it, being the Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples built by human hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. Once again, simply in virtue of being himself, 
God is always all set. He values and enjoys our worship. One way to say this is he's happy about us, but he's not happy because of us, as though we were supposed to be the foundation of God's fulfillment and God's contentment, which is a burden that no little creature like me was ever meant to bear. The analogy of a parent and child comes to mind, though parent-child analogies inevitably break down at some point when we're talking about God. Everyone can see the problem when a parent has a child in order for the parent to be self-actualized. Maybe dad never became a professional athlete, and he's bent on making sure his son becomes one in order to validate himself. That's very different from a parent simply finding joy in the child's well-being and growth in the image of God. Now, the analogy breaks down because human parents end up needing their children to help take care of them, whereas God doesn't. He's the one that never truly, never, never grows faint, never grows weary, as Isaiah 40 teaches us. I had a student one time, though, ask me, but isn't God better off with us? I slammed the door, just like that. <laughs> to which I immediately and happily said, no, we don't make God any greater or better than he already was, which is good news because we are not sufficient to be an anchor of God's contentment. Instead, we're invited to participate in God's already established joy that he has in the fellowship of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God is happy about us, but he's not happy fundamentally because of us. Think of how God's self-sufficiency is good news for his work of salvation. He doesn't faint or grow weary, as Isaiah says. He created the world, and human beings nearly wrecked it through sin and violence in the book of Genesis. So God became weary and almost withered up, right? No, he goes on. God chose Abraham to be his special representative from the nations, but then Abraham lied, and he made a mess of things by trying to do his own thing. So God got irritated and gave up. No, God goes on. God's people were stuck in Egypt and enslaved by Pharaoh, one of the most powerful human beings ever to exist. So God became discouraged and gave up, right? No, God goes on. God chose David to be king, but then David did just about all the bad things that you could imagine him doing. Adultery, manipulation, murder. Was God undone? No, God goes on. What about when Israel rebelled and went astray in idolatry and filled God's land with evil and God sent them into exile? Was God overwhelmed and deflected from his plan? No, God goes on. In fact, Paul describes what God has done in Romans 9 to 11. He'd already chosen and appointed a people for himself. With Jews and Gentiles, he brings them to faith in Christ. And it never depended on the initiative or the reliability of a sinful human being. Think for a moment about the implications of God's self-sufficiency for our own lives right now. Let Let me draw out two things here. First, the value of your life in the sight of God. According to some of the ancient myths written around the time of the book of Genesis, the gods were tired. The gods were tired of working all the time, so they created human beings to do their work for them and to provide them with things. In that sort of view, human beings don't have value in their own right. They're just around for someone else's self-actualization. But Genesis comes along and teaches us that God was already God. That's such an interesting opening to the Bible. In the beginning, God. Wait a minute, aren't you going to 
further describe how the subject of that first sentence came to be in the position that he was in. No, no, <laughs> he's just God. Just accept it. By implication, God was already self-sufficient, and he just chose freely to make human beings. Why do you and I exist? Well, not because God had to make us, but simply because he liked the idea. That should have a profound effect on how you view your own existence and value. I think we talk about God loving us, but if we actually let it sink in a little bit more, it would do us a lot of good. God actually liked the idea that I would exist and be here. Second, Christian, think about how solid your spiritual well-being is. If you have faith in Christ and belong to Christ, then the self-sufficient God who needs nothing from anyone and never grows weary has pledged to preserve you in the faith. As Paul puts it in Romans 8, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ. I'm reminded of a part of Lord of the Rings. I don't know if you do nerd theology out here in the southwest part of the valley, but I'm reminded of the Lord of the Rings, as I often am when I'm thinking about the Bible and theology. I'm not sure how much of this comes out in the movies, maybe a little bit, but in the book, uh, you learn that Legolas, he doesn't really sleep. He and his companions are on a huge, crushing journey to rescue their friends from captivity. And his companions, Aragorn and Gimli, they certainly need to rest. Legolas, though, when everyone else goes to sleep, he just stands there and looks up at the stars. What does he need? Does he need food, replenishment? Does this become awkward at some point? Now, even Legolas needed some sustenance and help at times. But think about God. There are a lot of evil things and problems in the world. There are a lot of sins that we commit. And there are reasons we might think God is fatigued. Is there any risk of God being done with me? No, he's fine. Yeah, but no, really, he's fine. When his children sin, he does sometimes withdraw the comforts of his presence in order to lead us back to repentance, which is what the talk of grieving the Holy Spirit is about in Ephesians 4.30. But is God literally damaged or weary? No, he's fine. Yeah, but no. Listen to the, to, to the preacher, dude. No, he's fine. <laughs> the psalmists sometimes think God is sleeping. But above any vitality and power that Legolas has in Lord of the Rings, God says, he who keeps you does not slumber or sleep. Psalm 121, verse 4. God has not and cannot lose any ounce of his energy that is required to bring you home. After self-sufficiency, let's think about grace as well. The grace of God is certainly on display in Romans 11.35. Who has ever given to him that God should repay him? No one could ever give something to God to put God in their debt. Paul made that so clear in Romans 9, earlier in the book. Before any of us did anything, God appointed his own people to be vessels of his mercy through faith in Christ. We don't bring something good to the table to secure our acceptance with God. We can't even take credit for our own existence. It's a little bit of a disorienting thought, but have you thought about that before? We didn't even earn the right to exist, much less to demand something from God. Every good thing is from God or ultimately brought about by God. 
even when God kindly involves us in the process to bring it about. The one thing that is not caused by God is our sin. So congratulations to all of us. Our one distinctive contribution that we alone bring to the table is our wrongdoing. The human race didn't begin in a state of sin and alienation from God, but ever since humanity's fall into sin, we've been doubly indebted to God, not only as our creator, but now as the redeemer and rescuer that we need. And maybe you're here and you've never really thought that through. You've heard about God and know that we have some accountability to God, but the details are fuzzy. Well, according to what God has revealed to us through Jesus and through the Bible, there is good news. God created us and cares about us, but then there's also bad news as well. We've turned away from God and deserve God's condemnation. We don't honor God as we should. We don't pay attention to him. We don't reflect his character in the way that we treat each other. We act selfishly and so on. And we had no way to obligate God to get us out of that situation. But God still cares about us creatures. As we just considered, God didn't have to make us, but he wanted to. And he still intends to bring people back to himself through Christ. So God is gracious. We can't repay the debt of our sin and wrongdoing. He's ready to extend forgiveness and new life. He provided the payment for our sin through the death of Jesus. Jesus rose from the dead to offer forgiveness and new life to everyone who turns their heart toward him and trusts in him to be their savior. There's absolutely nothing we can do on our own to merit or earn God's acceptance. And there's no degree of goodness that you must reach before there's no good there's no degree of goodness that you must reach before calling out to him to save you from your sin and, and condemnation. It's pure grace. Jesus did everything that we needed. Then we reach out our hand to Jesus and simply trust in him. That act of trust is paired also with an act of turning away from our rebellion against God. And that turning away is called repentance. When you trust in Christ for forgiveness and new life with God, and you repent of rebelling against God, you're not promising to be instantly perfect. That is not what's expected. But you are, in principle, choosing a new path. So over time, with God's help, you'll grow in obeying God and enjoying God more and more and being involved in the life of his church. If you're just figuring out what it means to trust in Christ for salvation, please talk with people at the church. I'll be around for a little bit today anyway, but long term, you've got pastors and elders and church members that care about you. Please talk to them about that process. Finally, let's turn our attention to the glory of God. Paul explains in verse 36 why no one is ever given to God so as to put God in their debt. For from him, for from God, and through God, and to God are all things. To him be glory forever. No one can contribute to God or provide for God because everything is already from God. And it's sustained through God and it's oriented back to God. God is the source. He's the sustainer. He's the goal of everything that exists from beautiful mountains and trees outside to animals, to human beings, to angels in heaven. 
I think it, it's good for us to reflect on how much people in our society need to hear about this. God is the one that they came from. He's the one who preserves their life, and he's the one that they're made for. Many people don't know or they try not to know that we came from God and are made for God, to live in communion with God, enjoying him, representing him, serving him. In other words, people don't know or they're trying to avoid the knowledge of what is the point of a human being. But Romans 11.36 and other places of Scripture teach us that the point of a human being is to know God, to live in friendship with God, to enjoy God, to represent God, to serve God in all that we do. And once someone sees that, all of a sudden, everything can fall into perspective. Oh, that's why integrity matters and holiness matters and the way that I treat my kids matters. and All of that matters. That's why human beings end up damaging themselves also when they try to recreate themselves according to their own random ideas. And that's why Paul says, to God be glory forever. Now, what is glory, and in what sense do we give God glory? It's a big question. Glory, you can say, is majesty or splendor or preeminence or excellence. It has to do with the perfection and greatness of God. But especially as his perfection and greatness are apt to produce awe and reverence and wonder in us creatures. The Israelites, for example, sang about God being awesome in glory when God led them through the Red Sea and drowned the Egyptian armies. So the word glory can signify the majesty of God himself or God's own being. And then sometimes glory can signify the outward manifestation or the recognition of God's majesty. That's a key distinction. I'll pretend it all makes sense since this is not a Q&A time right here. I'll just pretend it all makes sense. The majesty of God himself on the one hand, and then the outward manifestation of it or the recognition of it on the other. In the first sense, we do not give God glory. We do not make God's being any more majestic than it already is. In the second sense, though, regarding the manifestation or the recognition of God's majesty, we do give God glory. We may display God's majesty in our lives, or we may recognize and declare God's majesty. Let's think for a second about how this connects with our lives as well. First, I'm going to offer a clarification and then a a comment on what it means to practically glorify God. And then after that, we can wrap up. So first, a clarification. We just went through how God doesn't need anything. He doesn't need us to make him better than he already is. So why should he demand that everything be pointed to him? Why should everything be focused on the manifestation and recognition of his greatness? Isn't that self-centered? Isn't that the mark of an egomaniac who wants to use people for his own self-actualization? Ordinarily, if someone says, hey, it's all about me, then yes, that is the mark of an egomaniac. But of course, you may have heard that God is rather different from us. He's the creator, not some creature, not even a great big creature. God himself is actually the highest goodness and perfection and source of delight. There is no ultimate goodness and perfection and source of delight other than God himself. So God directs us back to himself, not because he needs to boost his self-esteem, but because there just is nothing else for him to direct us toward. There isn't anything else that can ultimately satisfy us. You want the highest good and majesty and wonder, where else is there to go? 
everything else that's good is just a little echo of the fullness that is there in God. So it turns out that for God, the most loving thing to do is direct others back to himself as the ultimate object of their desire. One way that I'll try to illustrate this is imagine that you're at the Grand Canyon, or if you Arizona natives are not keen on the Grand Canyon anymore, if you've been, if you've been desensitized to the grandness of the Grand Canyon, you can imagine that you're at Yosemite National Park, you're at the ocean if you like the ocean. It's a beautiful day, beautiful scene, but someone that you brought insists on not looking at those things and maybe staring down at a little video game screen the whole time. You might want to argue with said person, but if the Grand Canyon or Yosemite Falls or the Pacific Ocean itself could speak, it would be right for it to say to that person, stop looking at lesser things, fix your attention on me, and be filled with real wonder and joy. And if it would be right for the Grand Canyon or Yosemite Falls or the Pacific Ocean to say that, how much more so in God's case? Glorifying God, pointing toward and enjoying the majesty of God is really the only way for a human creature to be happy. Everything else is just like playing a video game on a tiny screen in the parking lot at Yosemite or the Pacific Ocean. All right, that was a little clarification. Now, what about a practical comment on how we glorify God? And then after this, we'll pray and finish up. What does it mean practically to glorify God in all that we do? Well, there are an infinite number of ways to exhibit the greatness and goodness of God in your life and to draw attention to God's greatness and goodness. You can certainly do that by speaking about God, particularly about what God has done in Christ for the salvation of sinful people. You can do that at home and to the degree that it is feasible and fitting at work and at school. Let me add that you can glorify God in various ways, even when you don't explicitly have a chance to name the name of Christ. You can glorify God by working on something with a thankful heart and producing something that reflects the wisdom and power of the Creator. I hope that's an encouragement to brothers and sisters who maybe have jobs where they sometimes feel guilty about not being able to explicitly name the name of Christ every second of the workday. You can glorify God. And please God in the midst of that. You can glorify God by representing him well in a difficult relationship and reflecting his wisdom and kindness and uprightness. And you can glorify God simply by being attentive to the ordinary means of grace that he gives to us to grow. The word of God, both preached and read, baptism, the Lord's Supper, daily prayer. My hope for you and for the church is that you'll grow in resting in the wisdom and the self-sufficiency and the grace of God, and that you will more and more seek to do all things in your life to the glory of God, for the manifestation and recognition of his majesty. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful to read a passage like this and to be reminded of the truth about you. It is easy to look downward at the small realities of our lives. Please help us in the midst of all that consistently to look upward, to reflect on your wisdom and self-sufficiency and grace and glory. We pray that you would fill, us, fill our hearts up with an appreciation of your attributes, and we pray that you would use all of that to help us to be thankful in our everyday lives 
and to treat others well and represent you well and glorify you in our everyday moments. We lift these things up to you in Christ's name. Amen.